Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. And today we are joined by Micah Kessel from Playground of Empathy and Empathable. Micah designs experiences for human flourishing. His emotion-centered approach to experiential design was informed by performing at the Metropolitan Opera as a child. His current project, Empathable, is winner of the Harvard Culture Lab Innovation Fund Award and creates empathy by allowing participants to walk in the shoes of difference. Going into this interview, I thought that his inclusive playground was an apparatus because I look forward to the day when every playground at every school is one that is inclusive and attainable for everyone. So I was so excited when I went to the website and started exploring the playground of empathy. This gave me hope for the playgrounds in our children's lives, but beyond the elementary level, this is at the foundation of the playground that we all exist on, creating empathy, honoring people's spaces, the conversation, the words, is something very special to me. And it gives us hope for a shift towards a society that honors differences and honor honor ourselves, honor our own space. This is the stuff of our conversation that I loved because all of it gives me hope. It gives me so much hope that the changes that are needed for equality and equanimity, these are the tools that can bring them. And on a personal note, the insights that I gained from this conversation are all things that I really wish I knew then. So welcome, Micah Kessel. Just trying to advocate. Well, Andy's hey, pretty good because he's a... I'm just listening to you talk before you arrive. Ah, good morning. How are you? Which one were you listening to? Um, the one from, I believe they're golfers and they have a child who has Down syndrome. Is that right? Yeah, he's a caddy. A caddy. Paul Tesori. Fantastic. Yeah, what a wonderful assortment of people that you've had on so far. Thank you. We have been really fortunate. We actually started the podcast so no one who came behind us had the same journey that we had and to put the answers out there that weren't there for us. And really, we're still searching. So as we continue to move forward and come across new things, like we're learning. I think that's the thing is that we're learning and figuring it out. And it's nice to, you know, sometimes when you learn something, you're the only one who gets the information. But this way, other people can have it yeah, too. Yeah, we can share. Yeah, in social science, there's a phenomenon called hindsight bias, which you may have heard of, right? Which is the idea that once once something has happened, it's very easy to say, oh, well, I mean, I thought that. I actually had an intuition that that thing might happen, right? But But more than often, that intuition is a flashing thought where there are other thoughts that were more important at the moment. And that's why you chose what you chose. So it's so nice to hear how someone else went through something. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's like our present conscious deja vu, you know, where you think, oh, I, wait, I knew that, right? But no, actually. Well, Micah, it's so great to have you here. It's great to be here, y'all. I tested positive for COVID three days ago. So you'll hear it a bit on my voice, um, but I'm, I'm really happy to be here nonetheless. I'm so sorry yeah. you're not feeling well. Hope you feel better. I understand. No, thank you. Thank you for your empathy. I appreciate it. This is at least six feet apart. So yeah, I think we're, we're all okay. being safe. <laughs> we're being, good. We're being okay. good. I was so excited to speak with you because when we saw Playground of Empathy, there's a lot of different playgrounds that are actually created that are inclusive playgrounds, you know, so that they're accessible for every child. It's actually something that as far as a passion, just to have those at every school. So when we first heard the name of your organization, Playground of Empathy, I was like, this sounds brilliant. I want to talk to somebody who's, who's making these playgrounds. And then when I went on your website, first, I loved reading about just how diverse and inclusive and artistically um, founded your board is. 
they just, it's, I think it's just such a beautiful, eclectic group that just, it's, <laughs> I loved it. And, uh, and then I watched your videos and I told Steven, I was like, this is not a playground. <laughs> This is not like an well, apparatus. This apparatus is not an apparatus yeah. that we're talking about. Right off the bat, I loved your statement that you said. And your vision was to create a community that does not only speak of inclusion or try to understand it conceptually, but is actually able to apply the knowledge and become truly inclusive. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> it's so amazing because I feel like I feel like a lot of times, um, because we fight for inclusion, yeah, just for an education. Uh, the the fight that we had all the way through elementary school, which sounds so silly that you'd fight for elementary school, but it was so taxing. And the word inclusion is a word, and then people detach from what it actually means. Like there's there's such a detachment from the concept, and I think that it's starting to become part of our society. It's starting to become part of the conversation, you know, in film and all of these other areas where they're really bringing attention to diversity and inclusion. It's a word, but I I feel like it's a like a it's kind of surface, like the just it it's the leaves instead of the seed of the tree kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that's also a challenge within, you know, DEI or DB&I, right? There's many different acronyms that are used. Um, JEDI is also used, including justice, right? Um, Diversity, for most organizations and institutions, is so much about bringing in a diverse talent pool, right? Knowing that that's a very important thing. The effects of that from a social science perspective are huge, right? We get, we make better decisions, we problem solve better, but it, it's very much um, an, a cognitive choice that, that organizations need to ma- make. Equity in many ways, frankly, for most organizations is about closing pay gaps, which we're not great at, but that's what a lot of folks are thinking about. Inclusion is actually much more of a, of a nuanced thing in a sense, right? In, inclusion and belonging, is something that we all want to feel in our entire lives we've we've been looking for ways to be included and to belong in any social group that we've been in and when we haven't felt that it's been um, a challenging experience for everyone right and so the space of inclusion and belonging is one of the hardest to apply statistically speaking 75 percent of programs that teach inclusion and belonging do so with negative messaging for example Negative messaging, I think, generally doesn't promote a sense of inclusion and belonging. I would also say that most programs are teaching these things as if they are facts and statistics, right? Do this, don't do that. But generally speaking, those are not the things that also help us feel included and belonging. Inclusion and belonging happens through invitational language, through inspiring language. Would you like to? I'd love to invite you to. I'd I'd be curious about. I'd really love to hold space for, right? These sorts of, this sort of language is the language of inclusion and belonging. And I think that's what we can be focusing on when we're thinking about what it means for everyone. Everything about this conversation makes me so happy because the language that you're using, words are so powerful. We just had a few conversations in a few different episodes about the power of your words. And I and I believe that we're because it's at the beginning, a lot of times the beginning of things it's kind of sloppy and it's like, you know, you're just trying to find your way. Uh, I think that the language that you're speaking about is, is so beautiful. And this is the transition where your playground of empathy, this, I think this is where the empathy comes in because by building the empathy, which is what you, and you do it from the inside. This is what I love about your program is that you do it from the inside and it's not something that's put upon somebody like this is what you're going to do. Cause when we do something from the outside where we kind of just follow along the outline in hopes of getting it right. And sometimes we don't know why we're doing it. Sometimes we might use different language and we don't really know why we're doing it. And in doing that, sometimes we can like, you know, mess up the words at times because it's not coming from the inside. And this is what I love about your playground of empathy. There's an understanding that is grown inside each individual that participates and that creates an empathy. So there's not a question as to why it comes from this beautiful place of connectiveness. Yeah, absolutely. Connectiveness, realizing that we all have such different perspectives 
and actually being able to acknowledge the validity of both our own perspective while realizing that someone else's perspective is equally valid because it's another individual in this planet, right? Like our realities are very fictional. At this moment, I'm a fictional character <laughs> in your reality, in the reality of your mind. But the thing that we sometimes forget is that you are also a fictional character in the reality of your own mind, right? The way that you think about yourself, the way that you describe yourself, the, the ways that you do or, or don't like yourself, your, your self-critical nature. I think we all know if we've had friends or partners, right? That the things that we can think about ourselves can vary so much from how other people see us, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Right. And so the idea of our own perspective being valid, our own view of self being something that is allowed to be considered can take up so much space in our life. What if we were to allot a percentage of that space to say that this other person out there is having an equally valid experience? And I think um, recently, especially, I think about a book written by John Koenig called The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. It came out last year. And you were mentioning language gets invented all the time and changes all the time. It's so true. Um, he invented a word called sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R, as a, as a noun. <laughs> um, and sonder he defines as the realization that each random passerby is the main character of their own story, living a life just as vivid and complex as your own just as vivid and complex as your own. What if we were to see empathy not as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another, right? Which is the dictionary definition and which actually is scientifically impossible because we'll never be able to truly understand. We hardly understand our own experience sometimes, right? But what if we were to see it instead? What if empathy is actually the ability to celebrate the validity of another's experience, right? Crafting the ability to celebrate someone else's experience as valid as our own. I think we need to redefine empathy. And I think that's what, what Playground of Empathy and what our product, what, what we've created, Empathable, is really all about. It's about helping people walk in each other's shoes to have perspectives that are very, very different from our own, but that give us the time to think about those perspectives and realize that those also are valid to exist and something to be not only tolerated, but actually celebrated. Those differences can be celebrated. It feels like the glue or the medicine to heal so much brokenness is really what it feels like. When you talk about fiction, I feel like any situation, especially if there's any kind of conflict or, or disconnect, I feel like that is the key thing to hold in your head, that their experience is just as valid as our experience my brain automatically goes to the fight for an education, which a lot of our, a lot of us in our community really have to fight because there's a, the, the right of our children to be educated gets just thrown out the window. Um, and it's really hard sometimes in those situations to, um, I mean, empathy doesn't even come, come into your brain when you're, when you're fighting for equality for your child, right? When you're, when you're standing up against injustices. But I, there's something in my heart that thinks that if we can have empathy and have just an understanding that that person has a journey just like ours and it's just as valid, I feel like at least that makes the foundation that we're standing on movable. Absolutely. And that foundation of emotional education is truly what's missing in many ways and what we need to be cultivating. And it starts in the home. Absolutely. It starts with parents that are inquisitive about their child's emotional state and not necessarily reacting to it, but allowing it to be what it is and, and letting it develop. You know, as a, as a social science researcher and with the labs that we work with that study emotion and bias at Northeastern and Harvard, we're looking at not only the way that emotions and bias and bias interventions can impact how we perceive others, but we're also looking at physiological things, right? So for example, let's say that you've had a really stressful day and you're metabolically, right? You're just, you're, you're tired, you're hungry, you're annoyed, right? And you come home and someone says, I would like to invite you to try a type of cuisine that you've never had before in your entire life. It's gonna have 16 different tiny dishes or you can have a burger and fries, <laughs> you know, 
what are you going to go for? You're going to go for the thing that you know. You're going to go for the thing that you have the mental space for, right? To be metaphoric about it. And that's because when we are stressed, when we're metabolically limited, when we have less bandwidth, we also have less space to accept variation. And so starting to develop a culture where we can accept variation also means being able to depolarize and de-stress our environments. It, it really, it loops in on itself. The more we can listen to each other, the less we elevate conversations to the point of stress, the less stressed we get, the better we'll be able to be able to, yeah, to listen to each other. And, and that's why it doesn't matter where you go in into the loop, but you have to enter somewhere. So in that situation, when you're in an IEP and, you're, and your bandwidth is very, very limited because you're under a stressful situation, you're basically choosing burgers and fries instead of a, a bigger conversation. I love uh, the part of the conversation talking about your child's emotions. Like, I, I forget exactly, I couldn't write it down as quick as you said it, but it just struck me right, right away because as parents, we get stressed trying to... I hate this word, but fix, make something right. Um, we're always judging ourselves. I hear this a lot from parents about, I want to make sure I'm giving the support that they need. I want to make sure I'm doing it right, that I'm I'm giving them everything because you can feel very isolated on this journey. You can feel like you're always fighting on this journey. And when you said that about, I, I'm just going to paraphrase, but basically honoring and flowing with your child's emotion instead of judging it or trying to fix it. And I want to go back to that because it was really beautiful. Yeah, totally. And it, it really ties into the diversity and inclusion work too, because we see diversity and inclusion and belonging and that whole conversation about implicit bias and things like that as something that we need to learn to improve. And that may be true. I'm not refuting it. I'm not even entering that conversation at this moment. What I am saying is that exposure to different perspectives is healthy. <laughs> exposure to different perspectives gives life more opportunities to grow. When parents want to help their child and are encumbered by the fact that they're seeing their own bad habits reflected in their child, right? Or they're trying to live by example, but that example isn't always perfect. It's often the fact that we live in very homogenous environments, right? We're underexposed to different variations of our way to do it. And so our child gets our way and they get maybe the way of their peers in school, maybe only a few, a limited view of those peers, depending on how diverse our group is, right? And so as a result of that, there are so many options of how to solve a problem, of how to deal with the frustration that we could have access to if we allowed ourselves to be curious about diverse viewpoints. And those diverse viewpoints are held by generations of cultural understanding that happen in different countries, right? We know that if you're from Ghana, or if you're from Italy, or if you're from China, you'll have such different ways of perceiving life and solving problems and considering conversations. We forget that there are microclimates that, you know, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, by and large, there are also those different cultures that we could be drawing from. If we were curious about different ways of solving things, we could learn so much. And I think we often make the mistake to think that when we're hearing someone else's perspective, that we need to agree or disagree. But that entire idea of agreeing or disagreeing is based on some sense of an objective truth, when we already know that most of truth is subjective. Right? So what if it's not about agreeing or disagreeing? We're one of the only programs that doesn't ever tell anyone they're right and doesn't ever tell anyone they're wrong, doesn't ever tell anyone what to think. Imagine that. For those of you who have gone through a diversity training of some sort, imagine going through and not hearing anyone once say, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, and this is why you're wrong, which by the way creates a lot of defensiveness and pushback that nobody speaks up about. That doesn't help. Instead, what if the answer to most things were, thank you so much for sharing that perspective. It's deeply appreciated. Realizing that the person who's sharing it in that moment is not a static person, just like we're not static. We all change. They're going to process that information. Mm -hmm. So when we hear things from different cultures and we give ourselves time not to say, oh, I, I like that or I don't like that because, 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 
Instead, we say, okay, I'm hearing this perspective and I'm grateful for hearing a different perspective. Let me sleep on it. Let me go on a walk. Let me wait a few weeks and forget about it and see when it comes up. And watch how that changes your child's life, right? Watch how that changes the way that you interact with your spouse or with your colleagues or peers or manager. See how that variation can create a greater celebration of life itself. That's what I think we need to encourage people to do as a solution to diversity and inclusion and as a solution to the polarization that we have in this country at this moment. I love the thought of not having to be right or wrong. I think that's so freeing. Well, that's truly taking out any judgments if you're just listening and then letting it come into your life whenever and however it does. Because I feel like this conversation with you, I'm I'm so excited about it for so many reasons. One, just how to apply it to my journey. And right now my brain is split into two different uh, sections. And one is the, the journey I have with my son, Liam, who has Down syndrome. And we're getting, I feel like and hope like beyond the sense to have to fight for everything. I dislike the word fight. I just, it feels, doesn't feel good in my body and just to make those changes and those shifts as well. But I I definitely am listening to everything that you're saying. And part of it just goes filters into, wow, how can this impact that journey? And then I look at it as far as just the world and humanity on the bigger scope. And I just, I think it's so needed. Because in any situation that you walk into, I was in a situation last week, in any situation where you're around different people, every person comes from a different place and they react differently. And, you know, some um, behaviors are more challenging to maybe navigate. And uh, and this is, isn't even through the lens of diversity, but just to have that scope of honoring another human is, I think it just changes everything because I, I tend to feel like we get very stagnant and, and cut out in like the way that we interact with people. Like the, it's almost like a... Like You're grabbing a, that burger and fry. Like, yeah. Like a soundbite. Like, you know, like sometimes you can hear and you know that that's that person's soundbite. Like they've said it. Well, that's something that... The, and I feel like that sometimes when we interact with each other, it's not... Um, and we can feel the flow. Like if I'm sitting here talking to you and there's like a flow to the conversation, there's not an agenda. It's just like this, um, this wave. And if, and I feel like we miss out on that connecting to other humans. It's so true. I mean, we could be, I love that quote from Esther Perel, the uh, sex and marriage therapist in Belgium. I think if we could apply this quote, not only to our relationships, but to so many people in our community, it would benefit us greatly. And I think you might know the quote. It's, you could be right or you could be married. <laughs> yeah, that I want to always make me laugh. It always makes other people who are married laugh, right? And I think it's a great point. We, we get so bent on the topical nature of what we're discussing and we miss out on the idea that behind those topics can be um, a degree of attention and curiosity that allows us to express how we feel and hear how someone else feels without being concerned if there's any any topical conclusion to even reach necessarily. And if there is, it doesn't mean that it's static either. Sometimes it's the best we can do it at the time that we have uh, with, with someone else. So how do we you know, open up our, our bandwidth to do that? That's again, such an important question, I think, yeah. Is it being curious about other people? Yeah, I think curiosity is part of it, absolutely. I think that letting go of the idea that there's, um, there's a solution to, to need to be found is really another part. When it comes to, to celebrating diversity, absolutely, right? Empathy is not a skill that we're born with. Um, it's not something that we have or don't have. I once heard an accountant tell me that his wife says that he's an empathy desert. <laughs> and uh, it can be easy to, to think that Certain qualities can be attributed to one person and not, but, but really it's a muscle that we train. And that's, that's a quote from Jamil Zaki, the empathy researcher at Stanford. Empathy is a muscle that we train. In order to train it, we need to walk in other people's shoes. And that's what Empathable does, right? We create these immersive experiences that let you walk in the shoes of other people through enactments of real life situations. And the thing that we make sure to focus on is not only moments that are challenging or where we don't feel seen, 
or where that person didn't feel heard or understood, but also to look for moments where someone feels really seen and really understood and really heard. Moments that are funny, right? Moments that bring us joy. Celebrating diversity means looking at the critical things, but trying to find a balance of appreciating the things about someone else's culture as well and appreciating the things about someone else's viewpoint. And when I say culture, I mean even the culture of a home from one home to another can vary. Also for managers and leaders of organizations, right, that are so focused on, I think it's actually a great example how leaders and managers of organizations, whether it's middle management or upper management, doesn't matter, right? And in fact, a parent is a sort of manager too. So we can look at it that way. There are things that we need to get done on a daily basis. We need to check certain boxes. We have KPIs and OKRs and business. We have getting our kids to school on time and making sure they do this and that, right, as parents. So we have boxes to check. Great. But what is the benefit of taking a few minutes every day or even a few seconds to just be curious, as you mentioned, right? Ask a question, like you said, Laurie. How does that make you feel? Or I noticed that might be impacting you. I don't even know how, but I'm really curious. And then when you get an answer, not trying to frame their answer in your own words, right? But just leaving space for it to be exactly as it is so that they feel heard. Saying it in their own words back to them. That builds a sort of belonging and a trust that becomes foundational and then when we make mistakes, we have that foundation to already build on, right? In other words, if you're a manager, just like if you're a parent, you're gonna mess up at some point. You're gonna get someone's pronouns wrong in business, right? Could very much happen. You're going to interrupt someone when you didn't mean to. You're going to blame your child for something that probably wasn't their fault because you did have a long day and you're tired. Right. And if if they don't have that space where they've already expressed themselves and you've heard them, then you haven't built that foundation. And then that social mistake becomes a part of a broken relationship, one that becomes exponentially harder to solve, exponentially harder. Right. If you have that foundation, then that mistake becomes a place where you've already shown them empathy. You've already shown that you find their experience valid. Right? Not that you understand them, but you find their experience valid. And then they will be more likely to also consider what might be impacting the way that you just treated me. Like, why did you yell at me when I didn't? Oh, maybe you're tired. Maybe dad's had a long day, right? Or maybe my boss is really just not understanding something because he doesn't have the context. You know, or, or maybe he, my boss, he or she or they have had a long day. Or maybe my boss is... I'm just not aware of this topic. And that's why she said that thing that I don't agree with. But I still feel comfortable to go to her afterwards and say, hey, I know you're my boss, but I also really want, you know, I want you to know this because it matters a lot to me. That's what creating space does. It creates a foundation of belonging and cultural, cultural belonging that we can build on as a community. Because if we don't have that foundation of trust, then someone says something and we're just affected by it and we take it at face value. And there is a bit of a, it does break it more, I guess, is the only way I could think. Like you just like look and that, that comment, whatever it is, becomes that person. And then that person is no longer uh, someone with an experience as valid as ours. They're just that person who said that thing or that person that's just not kind or mm -hmm. you, w whatever the situation is and then whatever, whatever label you put on them right? whatever label and then it's broken that connection is broken yeah yeah it's so um so challenging to have the perspective that if i were exactly in their position in life if i had all the experiences that they had if i was born you know in the exact same environment that they were in i'd probably do very very similar things that's such a hard perspective. It's easy to take when it's a when it's a slight infraction or when it's a little social mistake. It's hard to take when we really feel we've been wronged. And none of this is to say that we don't need to learn how to create boundaries for ourselves that do allow us to stay whole and allow us to recover if we've been triggered or hurt, right? That's also very important. But at the same time, at some point in the processing and in the healing of a community, I think it can be really helpful to take that time to really consider that perspective as if we could have done it ourselves. 
So Micah, my question is for parents who, when you said, when you mentioned about it's hard when you've been wronged, for parents who are fighting for their child, and it's really challenging when, you know, especially in the world of diversity and inclusion, our children with Down syndrome, like our son's civil right to an education was ignored, was withdrawn this year, like that we don't care. This is just what we're doing. In that situation, how do we find empathy in situations in situations like that? Because that's what our that's what parents in this community really experience. They experience violations, but with no regard to what's being done. It's like I'm just gonna do because I know I'm gonna get away with it. You know, but I feel like the empathy would actually help the parent. Like if I could have empathy for that person who just did that. But how do how do you find empathy in that kind of situation? Yeah, let me ask you, Laurie. When you speak with other parents of children with Down syndrome that have been privy to similar challenges, what is that like for you? I get so sad. Because honestly, the reason why we created this podcast is a lot of what we experienced was just, it was just so hard and heartbreaking. And you have this beautiful human who's your child, who definitely doesn't fit into the box they put them in. But this box creates boundaries in his life that you're having to tear down, of course, until he is able to tear down for himself. And you go through it hoping no one else is experiencing this and you you fight for it hoping your fight changes things that for people who come behind you and then it's so hard just the stories are still so abundant and it it makes me really really sad because i i just don't i just if we could change the path for one person to not feel that kind of pain um that's really why we're on this journey. That's why we have created the podcast. So when I hear other people are experiencing it, I just, I want to take their pain. I want to change it. I want to empower them. I want to make it right. These are things I want to do for them. Um, and that's why I ask you, because I think that, you know, I'll always tell my daughter, you know, you, you forgive people. You, you hold that in your, you hold the the peace and the love in your heart for you because it really heals you, you know, in a way it heals the world too. But like for you as a human, you don't, you're kind of freed from the stuff that weighs on your shoulders. And so that's how I feel. I feel really sad. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, first of all, I want to say that that sadness belongs here in, in this moment with us, with the three of us and with everyone who's listening. Let's just take a moment, literally, you know, two seconds of radio silence I don't think that's too much to ask, to just say that sadness belongs. That's great. Yeah. And I really, I'm celebrating that we're able to hold space for that sadness. So that's one thing that I'd say. Another is that it seems like this work that you're doing is part of that solution. And and I'm, I'm hearing that. And a third thing is that We often think that trying to sway the most oppositional forces in our life is of a lot of importance. (laughs) We put a lot of importance. And why do we do that? Very understandable reasons, right? They're oppositional. They create stress. They hurt us. They get in the way of our children's futures. These are really reasonable and understandable um, reasons, right, for why we focus so much effort and energy onto them. From a social science perspective and from a group dynamics perspective, I would say that exerting that same amount of energy and effort into people who are actually pretty similar to us in our viewpoints and our in our understanding, people who might even look and act similar and helping them understand your perspective because they don't have to actually do so much to understand it. It's just about, sometimes it's just about educating them or sometimes it's about, right? And this is why I think things like petitioning and protests can potentially be so, and historically have been so powerful because if we can get folks together who are already aligned, or let's say they're almost allies, 
And we can take those almost allies and turn them into active advocates. That's a really efficient use of our energy. And it's much more replenishing because we're taking only one piece of information and trying to help someone learn that information. Whereas taking someone across the, the, the bell curve, across the spectrum and trying to pull them towards you, you might win that battle. But if, it's, if you've exerted so much in order to get there, right, then is the cost worth it? That's a good question. And yes, that might mean that that oppositional force stays oppositional and you won't win that battle. But in the long run, in the world of a hundred choices every six months that you make, if those choices, the energy towards those choices is put into finding the almost allies and turning them into active advocates, I theorize, and I think colleagues would as well, it will be more generative, it will be more replenishing, you'll be able to retain resilience a lot more. And resilience is so important. I think we overestimate how resilient we are. <laughs> I think we're actually less resilient than we think. And so it's important to put ourselves in an environment with people that we can empathize with that have slight variations and learn from them and have them learn from us and then rally together. And I think that, you know, when it comes to protests and petitions, often it gets to the point where the opposition is so bad, where people have been fighting the opposition so much that that fury and that outrage then becomes the core entity of the protest, right? Or of the petitioning or of the social group. And again, it's not a conversation that I feel comfortable in engaging in, in terms of whether that's right or wrong. But I will say that peaceful protest or right groups that are understanding how to engage with each other as a force and then go to the oppositional body as a force and go to the oppositional body with empathy as a force. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that might do to conflicts even at borders with, with countries of, of high conflict areas with huge challenges in terms of how refugees are treated? Can you imagine how that might impact immigration or how that might impact, again, the way that we marginalize disability? So effort towards the almost allies, turning them into active advocates. That's my TLDR of your question. What's TLDR mean? Too long, don't read. In other words, <laughs> if I were to, you know, I just went on a little bit of a pedestal talk. I think if I were to sum it up, right, I would say instead of going to the other side and trying to sway the most oppositional force, what if we could find the people who are who want to be aligned with us, who already are motivated and comfortable and willing, but just don't necessarily know the things that you know, don't have your perspective, don't have the knowledge. And you could help them apply that knowledge by understanding through storytelling, how powerful could that be, right? How, how much might I be open and willing to engage in more active advocacy towards Down syndrome if I were to spend a half an hour with you? Let's say that we, we already get along. We already have known each other for five years, right? We, our, our kids play soccer together or whatever, right? Or basketball. We, we already have that relationship. And then already having that relationship, not being best friends, but, but you know, never having a reason to not like each other, let's say at the very least. And then you say, you know, would you like to come over for dinner? I'd love to, to like, I just feel like we have a good connection and I just feel like I'd like to let you in a little bit more and know, let you know about the perspective of, of my life. Um, and I'd like to hear more about yours as well. And then you took time to really storytell, not give them facts and statistics, right? Because we actually, we'll look at stories sometimes as more factual than facts and statistics. And so by sharing those stories with people that are more able and willing to hear you, we can create massive advocacy. We can get multiple people in a room who are comfortable and willing to speak up for the rights of others because often that's what's missing, right? You'll be at a school board meeting, for example, right? And you'll speak up and say something. If the next thing that happens is nobody chimes in to become a conversation partner, that can be extremely isolating, right? And it's hard to get momentum when there's not a second hand up, when there's not a second person in the room. So let's get two people in every room. That should be our goal. Two people in every room who are comfortable and willing to speak up for the rights of others. That's how we change environmental bias. I love everything that you said. And I just as you were saying it, it's, you know, it's that that light bulb where shifting that tension and the fight 
uh, I just, it just felt better all around. And, and I love that. I love that because I, I feel like it's the, the truth of maybe not being able to change that wall you're hitting yourself against. So instead, stop hitting that wall. And what else is in the room? And I know I'm like paraphrasing your words, and I know that's like not part of the, the empathy and hearing you. No, no. But I feel like that just it just it just feels better. Definitely taking the moment to have a space for the sadness when you felt sadness to have a space and take those. Yeah, two thank seconds. you for that because I I feel like as parents we don't honor I, I, that. We honor I feel it. like the sadness feels like weakness. I feel like the sadness feels like failure. I feel like we don't want our kids to see us sad. But if we don't let our kids see us sad, then how do our kids learn to hold their own sadness? And what happens when we repress sadness? Lots and lots of very disturbing things, right? Like, Lori, the sadness that you felt in that moment belongs in my life now. It's not mine, right? I don't own it, but I accept it. And I, I embrace it. And I celebrate it. I celebrate that sadness that you felt as an equally valid feeling to happiness. We often feel like when we're feeling happy emotions, we can just say, oh, I'm good, thanks for asking, right? Or I'm great. We often say this in the immersive experience that we share. We share it as a facilitated session and we also share it as an app so it can be scalable. We can make empathy scalable throughout organizations, right? But when we share it in a facilitated session, whether it's with six people or 600 people, we'll ask people to share three emotions that they're feeling. And when we ask them when they're sharing those three emotions, don't explain why. And it's for exactly what I said. When we feel emotions that are considered positive or pro-social, we have no problem saying, I'm good, I'm great, thanks, right? When we feel emotions that, are, that we might consider burdensome or we might consider overly complex, um, we often feel like we have to explain or justify. What if we didn't? What if we could just say, I'm feeling kind of sad today? Yeah. And someone might say, oh, why is that? And you could say, you know, I don't know but I'm also okay with it. God, what would that teach people around us, right? What would that teach the, the inner child of, of all the adults around us who didn't get that opportunity themselves? Like we're all learning and processing, right? So our inner child can also learn a lot from that even if we're 75 years old. And again, you might not see it happen in real time. So don't get discouraged, right? And I think that's really important to remember. Variation isn't only the norm, but it's something to be celebrated. And not only do we vary in terms of how we express ourselves and how we listen, but we also vary a lot in processing speeds. Some people process very, very quickly. Some people take a long time to process and not one is better than the other. They both have benefits in our society. They both have benefits toward, towards better problem solving and innovation and so forth, right? So you might say something to someone like, you know, I'm, I'm having kind of a sad afternoon. I'm just, you know, giving myself some space to feel that, but I also want to welcome you in this space and just let you know, and, you know, I don't need to solve it or anything. I'm okay with it. And they might give you a furrowed eyebrow, which by the way, we're very bad at reading other people's facials expression, facial expressions. We think we're very good, but scientific studies affirm that we are very, very bad at it. <laughs> we are very bad at knowing how someone else feels much worse than we think. Okay. So you, but nonetheless, you see that furrowed brow and you think, oh, they really disapprove of what I said, but maybe they didn't. Maybe they have a tummy ache, <laughs> right? Or maybe, maybe they are confused and maybe they're going to sleep on it. And maybe two weeks later, they're going to realize that they actually thought that was a beautiful thing because something else comes up with someone else and you will never, ever know. You'll never know that they actually really appreciated it. Every once in a while, we meet someone and they say, hey, you said this one thing this one time and I appreciated it so much. Just imagine that that happens so many times and we just don't hear it. I think that's the reality that I want to live in. One where we know, that, know how to hold space for our own emotions, right? Again, the validity of our own experience, not understanding ourselves, but seeing ourselves as valid and being able to live by example of seeing our whole selves as valid. And then through that example, giving other people the opportunity to learn from that without trying to get proof that it's working and then having, you know, faith or a belief or even, you know, a theory. I'm a more of a researcher than a religious person, right? So I'll say, you know, having a theory that the other people that we are giving that example to of holding validity of our own experience are also going to begin doing that more for themselves. We have to believe 
in a future better than the one that we are in right now and step into that into the present in order to create it. That's something that I personally believe. It's not true, right? It's my own valid fiction. You know, but if we could live in that more beautiful future in the present, then how do we invite other people to do so as well? I think that's something that fascinates me. I think it's something that I want as well in the moment. Um, so I want to talk about Empathable and the playground of empathy that you created, because I feel like whatever this is, I see it and I feel it from, you know, my conversation with you. I want to hear more about it and the experience. I, I, I did watch the video and I did notice also because I did notice on the on the website there is a place where you can be a part of the experience. You said you mentioned that you have an app um, or that you do with team building. Is this something that an individual themselves can just do, or does do you have to be in like a group, like a workplace or anything to take advantage of? Yeah, so I would say that it doesn't have to be a workplace. It could also be a school, it could be a community, it could be a church, right? Or some sort of religious institution. Right. There are many sorts of groups that could engage. It could be a soccer team, right? It could be a nonprofit that you volunteer for. And reaching out to empathable.com, which is spelled as you'd think, E-M-P-A-T-H-A-B-L-E, empathable. You can think of it that way. Right. And being curious and asking us more, that's that's a wonderful way to find out more and you know, glad to send information. What I would say is in order to understand why empathable is special, I think we have to have a context for where we are today in our understanding of each other's differences, right? And so we know in science that in the last 15 years, a vast review of interventions that are, help, that are aimed to help remove biases and teach implicit bias or teach us about our differences are failing. They're not showing that people are actually becoming less biased. We also knew from, know from organizational studies, Harvard Business Review did a study of 829 companies in 31 years that essentially showed that diversity training had no positive effect in the average workplace. That's really disturbing, right? We're in a time where we are economically investing a huge amount of finance and resources into trying to solve a problem that we're not solving effectively. And based on our research, I think the main three reasons for this are that most interventions are taught through bullet points and statistics, right? Do this, don't do that, as I mentioned. What that does is the second problem, it creates defensiveness and pushback. And just like 90 plus percent of issues that people have with each other don't get reported to HR, or don't get reported to a counselor or the principal, right? So too, most of that defensiveness and pushback does not get reported. And then the third thing is that they use negative messaging right? You're doing it wrong if you do this. If you've said this before, that is hurting someone. You know, and that might be true, but it's a hard way to change behavior in that sense. We need to start applying empathy by creating curiosity and positive relatability, relating to people in a positive way, being curious about their experience. And what we do is we use point of view immersive media, right? So you see things through someone's eyes, and you interact with them in an immersive app or in an immersive facilitated session. And what we see is that this is increases the ability to hold space for the emotions like we've been talking about, which allows us to feel more valid in our own experience. And if we can feel more valid in our own experience in a calm way where we're not being defensive, then we also have more space to be, find someone else's experience valid, right? It's like scientifically, we can make it as complex as we want to, but I think humanistically, we can all sort of get this. Right? If we're not feeling defensive, but if we feel a really a subjectively real experience, in other words, we know that our experience is fictional, but we're also very comfortable with that, then I can be very comfortable with the fiction of your own experience. And we meet people where they are, and we let them arrive at their own pace. We don't tell people that they're wrong. And we've seen that the data on this experience, by sharing it facilitated or through the app, we're noticing that people are using more positive language after the experience. They're feeling more comfortable, more confident, more proud, more hopeful, as opposed to apprehensive or conflicted or distracted, right? Which is by and large what people feel when they think about going to a diversity training. And sexual harassment training is sort of, you know, the precedent. There was more of that before there was diversity training. And I think by and large, when people in organizations or schools think about sexual harassment trainings, we realize it's very important and we realize that we are in a very disturbing society when it comes to how the different sexes and genders are treated. 
but these trainings are awful. They're so awful. And people phone it in, right? People sleep through them. People don't care. People, people feel like they're being lectured at. And so they're not actually teaching great values. It's almost like a punitive way of learning about how to become a better person, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. We need experiences where people are sharing vulnerability and connection and safety and community, you know, and are thereby what we've seen in our data is that people feel more comfort in speaking up about intersectional topics like the intersection of being disabled and a person of color, for example, or more comfort and willingness to speak up for the rights of others when it comes to body size and body type. Um, more comfort in talking about someone being trans or talking about transphobia. We even see more comfort and willingness to speak up to people's bosses, as I mentioned, right? Which is a very hard thing to do. Power dynamics are very complex, obviously, but people become even more comfortable and willing after this program to even speak up to power in a way that works and keeps relationships whole. And so that's why we're so excited about the work of Empathable because this highly different approach of approaching diversity and inclusion and belonging through inspiring people, through celebrating differences, through being curious. We think this is absolutely, absolutely not only the pathway to empathy, but the pathway to cultural belonging, and the pathway to, to belonging for, for everyone, because we all deserve to belong. Absolutely. The belonging is so important. And when you're talking about it, and I go back to just the, the video that people can can watch, just it it feels like you're on the inside and again like we talked about at the very beginning like it's it's more of an experience than than a lecture i remember the time on our journey where i just i was really angry about a lot of the comments that came my way and i always felt like i had to just tell like i i wasn't very empathetic in my delivery of things and i did have a light bulb moment where i was like the anger is not going to do anything to change anything at all. And I have to have some kind of compassion when delivering my message as to why those words hurt or everybody's so happy. Um, but my child doesn't have the same leisure as yours on the first day of school. We don't have that same confidence and celebration that summer's over, nor over the summer do we get that same ease. This is what we have to, we have to prepare for the next year. We have to do all these things. And, and it helped me to come from a softer place really of explaining and not being mad that someone didn't understand. And I think that's one of the things that I really loved, even though your video was very short, just that feeling that you were on the inside and experiencing the, maybe the feelings of what, what someone else would, would feel, you know, and, and so many questions, like there is one and someone's walking and they move out of the way. And she says, why did you move out of the way? Um, you don't have to move out of the way for a white person. They're not going to move out of the way for you. And I thought, gosh, that's just such a, I wanted to finish that conversation. I wanted to hear the rest of that conversation. And it's beautiful to want to know because those feelings are so valid. I love that you brought up that example because it, it's such a perfect one, right? Like in the United States of America, many black women have the experience that white people do not move out of the way for them. That statement by itself can cause a lot of inner defensiveness and pushback, right? What do you mean I don't move out of the way? I move out of the way for everybody. Everybody has the same chance, all of these sorts of things, right? But again, this is not about what's right and what's wrong yet. <laughs> it doesn't have to be, right? This is about hearing that. I can tell you that of the 10,000 plus people that have gone through our experience, the majority of Black women say, this is a moment that I can relate to. I too have noticed that people do not move out of the way for me when I'm walking down the street. And now I tell my teenage kids, hold space for yourself, because if you don't, no one's going to do it for you. And as a listener to that story, it would be very easy for me to make it a topic about society, right, to generalize. But none of us are generalizations. We are all individuals. So what if instead I could say, this experience to this one individual isn't for me to, to stand here and say, this is right or wrong, or this is what I think about it even. This experience is for me to hear. It's actually for me to celebrate. Even if it's celebration might feel like a weird word to use if we're talking about the way that someone feels hurt. But what I'm doing is I'm celebrating the validity of the experience. I'm celebrating that your experience is valid 
even if it's a hard experience, and therefore I'm being open to it. And what we've seen are people respond to that by, you know, I can say at one nonprofit, we share this that moment in time, that particular experience of someone not moving out of the way for a black queer college student. And there was a white man, boomer generation, who I think was in a position of management. And he said, I've never thought about that a day in my life. Is that a thing? And then a black female colleague of his, maybe 10 years younger, let's say in her 40s, responded and said, yeah, that's a thing. I think about that all the time. I've thought about that every single day of my life. Okay. Then he said, really? <laughs> which might sound ridiculous, but actually it's true curiosity and surprise. To which she said, yeah, really? And now that I have teenage daughters, I talk to them about it because with COVID, moving out of the way means moving on the street. And then he said, I'll never forget this. He said, well, now I'm definitely gonna move out of the way for you when I see you in the hall at work. And then she said, yeah, you better move out of the way for me when you see me. And they laughed about it and they had a great time. They had a great conversation. you know. And again, they had that foundation of two colleagues that already seemed to get along very well, but something dramatic had shifted in that moment. And we got to witness it, but you won't always get to witness it, right? But what we saw was a great example of two people taking time to not react in, that's wrong, that's right, right? Here's my opinion about that situation conceptually. No, here's the space I'm taking to understand your experience without needing to actually judge it whatsoever, but just understanding how it changes my perception of my own experience or how it highlights my own experience. Another person at a municipality in Texas in a very, very small town, and the location doesn't matter, except that it, it you know, you might consider that it might, but that's not for here and now. Um, saw that same experience and she said, I just thought that was rude. Everybody has the same chance. And we said, thank you so much for sharing that perspective. And then we came back a week later and she said, you know, I still think it was rude, but it's changed the way that I've been walking down the street. I've noticed I've been walking down the street differently. You know, again, we vary in the way that we process and sharing this experience with so many organizations, everything from Fortune 50 companies to really, really small elementary schools, or sorry, middle schools, I should say, has taught us that when you give people time and you don't create defensiveness and pushback in them, and you don't tell them what their experience should be, you just tell a story about your own experience and you don't compare it to theirs. You're giving them the opportunity to absorb that in a way that might be comfortable for them and then gives them the opportunity to change their viewpoint over time, even if you don't see it. So Laura, even what you said about, you know, my child doesn't necessarily have the same opportunity as your child might put, and I'm not saying there's not a right or wrong here, right? Advocacy can be different for everyone. But what if you didn't compare it to their child, which then put them in the perspective of wanting to talk about, you know, well, my child, you know, doesn't have it easy either because of this. And that might be true, but that's the point. We're not in like a trauma competition here, right? What we're trying to do is help someone understand our story. So let's do that through storytelling. Let me tell you the story of the day that I registered for the first day of school with my child. And let me tell you that story just from my own perspective. You know, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm not looking for anyone's opinion on what I should have done differently. I just want you to hear me. Are you available to do that? Wow, right? That would be really cool, I think. And again, there's not one right way to do things. I'm not, not here to tell you that you shouldn't tell someone to go jump in a lake sometimes. Right? Because the variation with which we're advocates is also important. There are moments for many things, and those also help us as a society. But I think a pathway that keeps resilience for me is one where I don't compare experiences. I try and tell my story and realize that by telling that story, people will see it more as fact than they will if I say, statistically speaking, children with Down syndrome um, are challenged with this and that, and this is one of the things that they go through, and here are the reports that show it, all well and good. And the story is what's going to get people to really move and really understand and really relate. It just seems to be how we're wired, right? It's not universal. These traits are not universal. But I would say we live in a society, and so we have grown a culture that adapts storytelling as fact something really good to consider, I think, and how to become advocates for our children and our peers and each other.
Michael, we thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you feel better. Uh, yeah, I hope you feel better. Thank you. I, I love your conversation. I was looking forward to it. I was so looking forward to this because I, I see something like what you're what you've created and it's one of those things that gives hope for the future. You know, it just it just gives me hope of the change that's out there and it just makes me happy. That means the world to me. That that hope is what I hope we can all thrive on as well. And thank you both so much. It's been wonderful speaking with you. I, I've really enjoyed it. For those out there that are curious to know more, again, you can reach out to us through empathable.com. That's absolutely the best way to get a hold. Or you can go to playgroundofempathy.com, right? One is our nonprofit arm and help serve communities that can't necessarily afford this experience or can't afford it at cost. And also does a lot of scientific research into understanding how interventions like these can be improving the practitioner community, but also the academic community. And that's, that's really important to get this work done and to get policies better too. Thank you, Micah. Thank you both so much for hosting me. It was really wonderful to be with you. I appreciate that. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Oh